This is the Church Planting Podcast, brought to you by the Broadcast Network. Broadcast exists to support, train and encourage church planters. For more information about who we are or about the training that we offer, please visit our website at www.thebroadcastnetwork.org. It's a, it's a privilege to come and, um, and just uh, share with you, really. Um, and thank you for be, willing, being willing for me to be with you yesterday. I wanted to do that just to get a feel for your family and also the pie. <laughs> Mostly it was the pie. Um, but it, it was, it was really, it's really helpful just to be amongst you and just get a feel for who you are and, and what you're facing. When I was... Uh, first uh, asked to come and speak to you, I, I met with Tim and we spent some time together and he was explaining about how Catalyst works and how this hub works and just giving me a lot of background which was really helpful. And, um, and from that conversation, the, the two things that I felt, I, I, you always feel a little bit captive to hostage when you say this sort of thing, but the two things I felt the Lord wanted me to share with you was one about contentment and one about you being priests. Now, I'm conscious that in our sort of context, those two words are hardly ever used in leadership meetings. Contentment is never talked about because we're always looking for the next thing. And that can make us incredibly discontented with what we already have. And I want to explore that with you because I think it's part of our spiritual maturity. And I think it's a key to the growth of healthy disciples of Jesus. And the second thing is about being a priest and about the calling that God has put on your life and therefore upon the lives of everybody else that you worship with. So I'm conscious that I might be exploring things that you will want to say, yes, but. And even now some of you go, well, contentment's okay, but yes, but. And I want to give you space to be able to say yes, but. Okay, so there will be a moment, if I can get through what I want to say efficiently enough, there will be a space where I'll say, so tell me what you're thinking. And I genuinely would want you to be able to do that. Because essentially, you never speak, wherever any of us speak, we never speak into a vacuum. We speak into a context. And um, I'm, I'm a visitor, and I'm parachuting into the middle of your story. Okay. So you're doing that really hard work of trying to make sense of anything that you're encountering in the midst of your own story. And it's really important that together we do that work. So I can come and share some stuff that I've prepared for you, but it's really important that you then try and contextualize it for your, for your context. So I'm hoping that that's what we're able to do this morning. I, I have been involved in Salford Ealing Church uh, for 30 um, since 1988, so 35 years this year. I've only actually known two churches as a leader. One was in Guernsey. <laughs> you from Guernsey? Okay. <laughs> we loved being in Guernsey. We had the privilege of being there for three years in the mid-80s. And at that time, at least. Uh, you, I mean, this was the previous century when you weren't born, presumably. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> But um, at the time, uh, you know, the story, because it's a true story, um, is that uh, at the time in Guernsey, you went to the town on the island uh, on a Saturday afternoon 
and met the whole of the island. Um, but because you didn't want to carry your car keys around within your pocket, because they're kind of like, you know, bulky, you put them in the footwell of your car, close your door, go shopping, meet everybody, and then come back. And of course, when you get back, your car's still there. Because if they stole it, where would they go? <laughs> On an island nine miles by three, there's no, you just walk to get it back again. It'd be like, and after three idyllic years then, uh, we moved to Salford. <laughs> which was remarkably similar. <laughs> the first Friday we were there, I was really young. I mean, you know, Richard said when he met Maggie and myself, he was in his 20s. I was five. Um, but when I was really, really young, and I'd, I'd come to this inner city church that was surrounded by barbed wire and steel doors and, and shutters and what have you. And um, on the first Friday, we had a deacon's meeting in the building. And one of the deacon's cars got stolen. And um, I didn't know, but that would become a regular sort of motif for early ministry there. And um, so I wanted to look like this spiritual giant. So I suggested that we pray for the lads who'd stolen it. It was always boys. And we'd pray for the lads that they would switch on the cassette recorder. And I'm now conscious you have no idea what I'm talking about. We'd, they'd switch on a cassette recorder and listen to Graham Kendrick singing, Make Way, Make Way. Now I've lost everybody under 40. And, um, and that somehow that would lead to saving faith. And uh, we, we had to pray that prayer a lot in the early years until we started praying a more biblical prayer, a more psalm-like prayer, which essentially said, oh, God, get them. And um, <laughs> I'm not sure that God answered any of those prayers in the way we expected. But, but that's my church. And for 35 years, I've served that church initially seven years full-time as the full-time pastor. And then after seven years, completely burnt out. Um, and so I did what everybody should do if you get burnt out in church ministry, go and teach other people to be church ministers. And I got a job at Regents College. I didn't tell them how burnt out I was because they tend not to give you a job, if you're honest. Um, but it was a brilliant healing time for me about rethinking what church was like, uh, should be, and, and, and what, therefore, leadership should be. For I, I don't think you can talk about church leadership except you have a very clear ecclesiology. And I think that's actually a failure of all the leadership materials that we, we, we devour avidly, is we stop thinking about our ecclesiology. Anyway, so I went through that period, and then I, I, I was invited to work for LICC, for London Institute of Contemporary Christianity, which I did for 13 years. And then in 2019, felt the Lord offered me the chance to go back to working full-time in my local church in Salford. And um, for a whole number of reasons, I decided to do that. And in 2020, so I'm just a pastor. I'm just a pastor like you're a pastor. I just got an ordinary church in a very ordinary place, full of very ordinary problems and joys and challenges. So I'm not coming as someone who's, you know, saying years ago, this is what I did. I'm saying, actually, this week, this is my life like yours is. And so hopefully anything I share with you might be helpful. So I want to start this first session about growing contentment, really. And, and, and there you have it. Those are the things I'm going to try and cover. The barriers to contentment, learning from it, uh, the reality of it, and the significance of, of why is contentment so significant uh, for us. But actually, before I get there, one of the things I want to say is I believe, and I've come to believe increasingly, 
the, one of the, the key things that God wants me to do with my life, regardless of my job, but with my life, is to take note of what God is doing. I know that sounds kind of like not very profound. Uh, but C.S. Lewis, who in any talk you give to anywhere, you need to shoehorn C.S. Lewis in. So this is my attempt. He said this, we may ignore, but we can nowhere evade the presence of God. The world is crowded with him. He walks everywhere incognito. And the incognito is not always hard to penetrate. The real labor is to remember to attend, in fact, to come awake, still more to remain awake. You see, week by week, when I get in front of my own congregation, one of the things I I feel my job is to do is to remind them that they've been in the presence of God all week, and he has been trying to get their attention all week. And when we gather together, what we do is we come with the stories of where we've seen God at work. Now, our tradition, because you and I, we come from a very similar tradition. We come from the same tradition. What we do is we tend to make some places more holy than others. This place, the house of God, come give us your presence. And I actually think our task is to become more aware of where God is. And that actually has had... A bit of an effect on the way my own spiritual life has developed. So I don't know about you, but I'm a reader, and I'm a I'm a I'm I'm kind of I don't I can never remember if I'm right brain left brain, but I, I I like to think, and I like to know, and I like to know why. So when I'm reading scripture, and I get to a bit that I can't quite work out, I want to run and find out the answer to that. That's that's really important. And in many ways, in my own spiritual devotions, I read myself into the presence of God. But the unintended consequence of that is I can live too much in the questions and the analysis and the wondering, and I forget just to be still. So for quite a while, what I've tried to do is I set, I mean, it sounds so childish. I go down early in the morning before it's, before it's light, really. I mean, not in June, but in December. <laughs> And uh, I switch my phone on to a 15-minute timer. I light a candle, and I sit, and I do not pray. And I sit because, actually, I'm trying to recollect myself before God. And you know what happens? (laughs) I'm I'm giving my testimony, not yours. (laughs) What happens? Nothing happens. At that moment, nothing happens except 15 minutes of silence and quietness and stilling myself and refusing to worry about the day ahead. But I think what happens is through the day, I do become more alert to what God's doing. Now, this is for me. I'm, I'm simply saying, you've you got to find your own way. But I, for me, that's become really quite a significant way of trying to still myself to become alert to, to God. Because if I don't, I get crowded out with a whole number of other things, including contentment. When I was thinking about this, and, and, and 
I, I, I'm not giving this talk anywhere else, so if it's rubbish, please tell me, because I will not do it again. <laughs> but I just quickly scribble down the things that get in the way of my own contentment. And over the years, I look back over years of ministry, and these are in no order at all, but one of the things that stops me being content with where I am and who I am and what I've got and what I'm doing is the success of other people. <laughs> it's not very noble, but I sometimes wonder why some people seem to be so much more successful. The accusation of my own hopes. You know that bit in Luke 24 where the disciples say to Jesus on the road to Emmaus, we had hoped. And Jesus, though they don't know, he's, but Jesus disappointed us. We had hoped. An expectation that God should do more. <laughs> you know? The rhetoric and the reality sometimes don't seem to connect. The disappointment of other people. The disappointment of other people around me. The disappointment of others that I minister with. Uh, being criticized always gets in the way of my own contentment. As does not understanding why some things happen. And then, by the way, if any of this stuff's helpful for you, and, and you want to go and cry over it later. Um, I'll, I'll let you have the slides, so you don't need to. If, you, if that's helpful to you, you're really welcome to them. And they're on the machine now, so I guess they could go out somewhere. Um, an overinvestment in my work. There have been certainly been times over the last 30, 40 years where I've simply been too intense about my own work. I've taken myself too seriously. And with that comes a sense that I am totally responsible for the good things and the bad things. And then last two, an underappreciation of sin, the flesh, and the devil, the recognition of our own brokenness, and an overlooking of what I've been given. And it's that, that tenth one, probably is the most significant and is the gateway, I think, to discovering contentment. The sense that what I have been given has been given to me as a gift from the Lord who loves me and actually has created me and formed me and fashioned me so that what I've been given is good for me and for, in my context, the church in Salford. Now, I don't know what you would have said if I'd have asked about your own barriers to contentment. I'm sure there's millions of other things that you might have wanted. These were just my personal ones. They were the top of the head jotting downs of what gets in the way of me being content as a church leader. And sometimes it is important to name them. So how do we learn it? Well, sorry about the, um, the, the smallness of the text. I, I thought... Richard would have had a bigger screen. <laughs> There's any number of disappointments you live with in life. <laughs> I, I've squeezed too much on. And you might find it easier to read in, in, a, in, a, in the Bible, but it's from a Philippians. And it's, it's a text you know really well. And I, I, I kind of want to construct this talk around the whole of the book of Philippians. So I'm going to keep on coming back to Philippians. But this is what Paul wrote to them. I rejoice greatly in the Lord 
that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all of this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good for you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. But even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. So there you go. What's Paul writing to them? Well, he's, he's writing to them to encourage them to give again. He writes about this idea that I've, I've learned to be content when I've got a lot, and I've learned to be content when I've got a little. And I want to make the really simple and simpl almost simplistic point that what Paul meant by that is, I have learned to be content when the Christians and the churches that I thought would have supported me because of what I have done for them, I've learned to be content when they've let me down. I've learned to be content when they've forgotten me. I've learned to be content when they've just got on with their own lives. I've learned to be content when, as a consequence of that, I've really struggled. That's what I've learned to be content with. Now, we may not have had that sense of loss, and I certainly haven't. But we probably have had the sense of being let down. Or the sense of being ghosted. You know, when people just disappear on you. And you wonder where they've gone, and, and then they pop up somewhere else. <laughs> and you're at a joint ecumenical event and you realize that they're there. Or when you've been misunderstood. Those are common features of church leadership. And so we've not had the same experience as Paul, but we've experienced similar things. And I suspect the emotions although they might have been more extreme for Paul, I think we've shared those emotions. And Paul says, those are the contexts that I've learned contentment for. And I've learned it because Jesus has given me the strength. I can do all of this through him who gives me strength. So for Paul, this contentment was not sort of, it wasn't a settling back. It wasn't saying, oh, I don't care anymore. It wasn't sort of like just holding on to his emotions. It wasn't him trying harder. It was actually a direct result of Jesus at work in his life, which meant that he could face his situations very differently. It was deeply rooted in his walk with Jesus. 
And it happened for him over a period of time. So as he matured as a follower of Jesus and as a leader and as apostle, etc., etc., it was the context of that that made him grow in his understanding of his position in Christ. It doesn't come fully downloaded. It probably really comes when you've been in ministry 15 years and above. At that point, you've probably lived through enough of the ups and downs to be disappointed, to be upset, to be all the rest of it. And it's at that point you decide, well, what sort of person, what sort of man, what sort of woman am I going to be now? Am I going to be the cynical type? Am I going to be the person who just always keeps a bit of a distance, just in case? Just in case. Am I the one who will be the judge? One of the things I've found in my own experiences that one of the battles I've had in my own heart and mind has been the, the judgmentalism that lies at my door. I am only a scratch away from being judge, jury, and executioner. <laughs> Let me give you a really simple, small, petty example and see if that makes any sense to you. Do you ever look around? In, so it happened uh, the other day. Um, one of our leaders, um, I couldn't see them in church on Sunday morning. I looked around them and I thought, where are they? Where are they? They should be here. That's my first thought. They should be here. My second thought is now, I bet I know why they're not here. I've now assigned reason to it. My third point is, I'm going to have to talk to them about this. Oh, by the way, we're worshipping, singing songs to Jesus at this point. And number, my fourth point is, if this continues, I don't think they've got any integrity to stay as leaders. I can do all of that within one refrain. <laughs> okay? Now, I, I know you're laughing because you're going, and that has never happened to me. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> and then I find out they were in a car crash. Does that, do you, know, do you know what I mean then? If I, if I don't grow as a leader, if I don't grow as a follower of Jesus, then I become this judge of the people that I'm called to minister to. I can do it through Christ who strengthens me. What does it mean? What does it look like? Well, I think contentment, I think, is essentially learning to live with limitation. We live in a world of limits. Just two biblical, very simple examples. Adam, right at creation, um, was asked to steward the garden, and he said to God, I'm not up to it on my own. I can't do this on my own. So he confesses his lack of ability to do what God has created him to do, and says to God, I can't do it. I'm not, I, I haven't got everything I need to be able to do what you've asked me to do. And what God doesn't do, he doesn't put Adam into some sort of deep coma and then graft on all those additional skills he needs so that now he can do it. God recognizes the limitation of Adam and so creates Eve and Adam has to live with a new circumstance. Right from the beginning, 
We all are limited. You are not omnicompetent, and you don't need to be. Think about the incarnation itself. The incarnation essentially is about God's self-limitation. So God comes to redeem humanity by joining the human race, by dying for it, etc. You know the story. But he comes as a man, not a woman. He comes as a Jew, not a Gentile. He comes to Israel, not Rome. He comes in the earliest part of what we now know as the first century, not in 1950. He comes into an oral culture, not a massive written culture at the time, etc., etc., etc. The story of the incarnation is God's self-limitation. But in the limitation, everything that God wants to achieve is done. It happens. And most of us live most of our lives going, I wish I were more. Or indeed, we are criticized for not being more. So your limitations are these. Your limitations are your personality, your gifts, your stage of life, and your history. Those are your limitations. And the more you can come to terms with that, the more you can learn the contentment that I think Jesus wants to bring us. So when you're starting out and you're in your mid-20s, how old are you? 30s, you look younger. Um, when you're in your 30s, the danger is that you compare yourself to someone in their 70s. <laughs> Thank you. And you're leading a congregation, and the danger is you think, well, I ought to be, I'm not, I'm not I mean, this is fictional. I don't know whether this is a tall truth. But the danger is that you think you should be better than you think you are, but you've only been doing it five minutes. Don't compare yourself to someone who's been doing it for nearly 40 years. And for us who are older, the stage of life where, you know, when I was, when I was in my 30s, I could, I could pull an all-nighter every other week. And I'd be fine. Now, it takes me about four months to get over it. <laughs> There's something about accepting the stage of life I'm at, which is a limitation. There's something about accepting the giftings that God has given me. So I, I think probably by gifting, I, I, I kind of fallen into the teaching kind of aspect of church ministry much more often than anything else. I think that's what God's gifted me for. But consequently, I get easily accused of not being everything else. And I just have to go, I'm sorry. What can I do? <laughs> it wasn't my idea. <laughs> it wasn't my idea. And it's not arrogance. It's simply saying, I know I need other people around me because I can't be everything. My personality is what it is, formed over years. I don't cry easily. I don't cry hardly at all. 
And in some contexts, I can feel inadequate because I don't. I might just go, well, I'm not sure I can. Fine. And I'm not repressed. I'm just me. <laughs> My wife's not here at the moment. Um, she would roll her eyes and go, yeah, it's him. And I'm limited by my history. I've only experienced what I've experienced. But if I embrace that, I can be used by God. If I fight against it, I will always be discontented. The second thing is, I'm limited by my setting. So in my context, I'm an Elim church minister with the joys and challenges of being part of that family. Uh, we don't have a building. We share a building with an Anglican church, which comes with its joys and challenges. I've got the congregation that I have with the joys and challenges. It's my setting. And there's no point me looking audacious down the road and wonder, if only I wore ripped jeans. <laughs> Would everything change? <laughs> I'd look sadder, but I'd, I'd do that if it meant 4,000 people turned up. Maybe. I'm in my setting. And then lastly, I'm ministering to a church with their history, their stage of life, their gifts and their personality. Therefore, I can't be someone else. And we've got to be at ease with who we are. You know, when I told you that after seven years of, uh, of church leadership uh, way back, I was burnt out. And do you know the reason I was burnt out? Well, you don't. Of course you don't. <laughs> Why would you? I was burnt out because I'd, been, I'd tried to be too much to too many people. So we would have people who would come to us and say, are you charismatic chandelier swingers? And we'd go, yeah, we're the place for you. And then I'd have other people come and go, I'm really into sort of meditative, contemplative, taise type worship. Are you, are you, are you, are you? yeah, we're in for that. And then you'd have other people, well, what kind of reform? Do you do good exposition? Oh, yes, we're that for you. And, and then we'd put out, and, and we, did, we did actually do this once. Um, are you depressed, lonely, uh, isolated, at the end of your tether? Come and join us. <laughs> and they did. <laughs> worst evangelistic campaign we ever had <laughs> and I was just knackered at the end of seven years of trying to be everything to everybody because I was desperate for our church to grow I'd been given a church of 40 people and in my context it was if you can grow this group of people we'll give you something better At the end of seven years, I was absolutely done in. And, um, and interestingly, one of the things that brought me health was I went to work at the college and um, I decided that I would not worry whether anybody liked me. I would just go and do a good job to the best of my abilities. And if they didn't like me, tough. Tough. They still paid their fees.
And some of them did, and some of them didn't. And, um, but consequently, what I did was I started to worry less about church. I used to have the graphs. You have done this as well. You know your growth graphs? I stopped doing them when they started going down. Because I'd lived on the emotional roller coaster of how are we doing and what do people think of me? Uh, I told this story at an event that I think some of you guys were at, but it, it just happened at that point earlier in the year. Um, there's a guy who was part of our church, um, lovely guy in many ways, uh, but he was 40 years old and he desperately wanted a wife. And he'd looked around our congregation and decided that this was not going to be the place where he would find a wife. So he said to me, I'm going to go to another church down the road. And uh, so I said, well, fair enough. Off we go. And um, so he did. He went to this church. And I said to him, but I'll keep, I'll keep checking in with you to see how you're doing. So after about three months, I, I, I got him and we, we met up. And I said, how's it going? He said, oh, that church is brilliant. I said, oh, good. I'm glad you're enjoying it. He's, I said, so how, how, what's it like? He said, well, it's different than yours. <laughs> good. <laughs> Why? They're much trendier. What do you mean? He said, well, they're just, they're just more up to date. Oh, okay. He said, even the pastor, he dresses better than you. And he looked younger. I said, but he's older than me. He said, yeah, but he looked younger. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great. And... And there's, and there's part of you that wants to go, listen, I'm doing the best with what Marks and Spencer's outlook can do. <laughs> I'm doing my best. But there's part of me that goes, do you know what? I can't be anything else than I am. I can't be what you want me to be. We can't be, as a church, what you want us to be. We are what we are. And we are what we are because of the people that have come to us and the people that got saved and the people that have been hurt by other churches. In many ways, we call ourselves the church of last resort. We've got so many people who join our church who go, this is the last chance we're giving church. If this doesn't work, we've, we're done with church. So many people, so many bruised leaders, so many bruised people. And they go, if this doesn't work, we... And so consequently, people who come from other churches to ours come guarded, suspicious, untrusting, ready for a fight, thinking they're going to get hurt again. Do you know how slowly you have to work with those people? We are what we are. Uh, me and Steve and Paul, we, we belong to a group that's a brilliant group. We meet on a Friday morning on Zoom uh, for an hour, and we share all sorts of things together, uh, church leaders in Manchester. And... Um, uh, just as a, a sort of like a throwaway uh, discussion the other week, we were talking together about, well, what are you doing different for Easter this year? I find Easter really difficult. I find it difficult to preach at because everybody knows the story. Um, I find it difficult because we don't get as many non-Christians. We get at Christmas, they all come at Christmas and it's easy there. Uh, Easter, I just find, I found it really difficult. You know, it's kind of like, you know, once you've preached 35 sermons on the resurrection, you've done it from every angle, including the blade of grass that was next to the tomb. Um, <laughs> And, um, and the guy, Paul from Audacious, who's brilliant. I mean, that church is absolutely stunning. 
an amazing, amazing church in this city. We would be so much the poorer without audacious. God has gifted us that church. And Paul was there, and he went, well, in, and he's a really humble guy. He said, well, in our church, we, we're doing, we've got a big family event. We, we, we ticket it because we've got so many people coming, and we've got big wheels, and we've got massive stuff happening. We've got big bands. We've got this, da 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 And it's like, uh. <laughs> And then they go, well, what are you doing? Well, we've got bourbon biscuits instead of digestives. You know, <laughs> it's kind of... <laughs> So here's the thing. Can you embrace the way God's made you with confidence? You will grow and you will change and you will develop. Please, God, you will learn new stuff. But can you embrace the way God has created you at the moment? And secondly, can you embrace the people that God has given you now? I think in my early days, I led church along this sort of line. Well, it's great, but wouldn't it be better if we had more? I've met so many church leaders over the years who go, to be honest, I'm, these are a lot, you're a busted flush. I'm looking for the new folks. Imagine leading your own personal family like that. Saying to your two kids, well, it's lovely you're here, but to be honest, I think our family would be much happier if we had two more. <laughs> I mean, you're great, but I would be more fulfilled if there were more of us. Imagine saying that. Can you embrace the ones you've got? And let me just move through. So what's the reality of it for Paul? Well, in the first chapter, he writes this. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what's happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. He's in prison. As a result, it's been clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. If that were your testimony, wouldn't you delight in that? I mean, that's really good news, isn't it? I'm in prison, but you know what? God's doing so many good things in the prison. And I can't understand why I'm in prison, but it's brilliant I'm here. But read on. It's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. What does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of that, I rejoice. What does it matter if a church comes 500 meters from yours and grows four times the size of yours? What does it matter? What does it matter? I wonder whether it was actually in these contexts that Paul learned contentment. There's, um, in this book, the book of Acts in the first century, um, Brian Rapsker says this about being a prisoner. To be a prisoner in the ancient world, whether it meant wearing bonds or simply being confined. So for some prisoners in the first century, they would be in, in, in cellars 
and, and in darkness. And other times you would simply be confined, which is probably what, well, it's certainly what happened to Paul in Rome at the end of Acts 28. He's in house arrest. So he's essentially Paul's experience of prison at that point, at least, isn't that, it's not the worst that could happen, but he couldn't leave. He was under arrest and he couldn't, he was, he was housebound. But to be a prisoner was publicly degrading, regardless of how it happened. Prisoners were shamed and insulted before the general community, their friends and family. Extended and sometimes permanent changes in relations and perceptions resulted. Their sense of self-respect could be shattered, sometimes mortally. Would the prisoner Paul have been alive to such concerns? The answer must be yes if we have an eye to the captivity epistles of the New Testament. They show a deep sensitivity to the potentially destructive consequences which the shame of prison and bonds might bring upon Paul, his mission, and his relationships with others. Why does Paul say so often in pretty much all of his letters, don't be ashamed of me? Because it was a reality that he is in a shameful position. Now, in, I, you could spend ages on this, but in honor-shame culture, that's a deep, deep problem. Can you imagine being a Christian in the earliest centuries and trying to persuade your neighbor to follow Jesus with you? And they would say to you, well, who's, who, how did it all begin? Oh, and it began with Jesus in the back end of the empire. I know it wasn't the great place, but he, it was, he was brilliant. He was brilliant. He, he healed people. He set people free. He raised people from the day. He's brilliant. What happened to him then? Oh, he was executed as a state, uh, as a state prisoner. He, he was a, a threat to the state, so they executed him. Would you like to follow Jesus? <laughs> but he rose from the dead. Who saw him? Oh, a bunch of women first, and then a bunch of fishermen in the back end of the beyond. Did he ever come to Rome? No, 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 no. But our leader is in Rome right now. Tell us about your leader. Well, he's called Paul. You'll find him because he's always in the same place. He's been arrested as a threat to the state. Would you like to join us? I think Paul learned this contentment in the midst of shame, potential disgrace, the hardest of situations with churches that let him down. I've learned to be content. And then finally, the significance. And the three things I want to say are the significance of this. Why does it matter? In the middle, it's, it's not Philippians 1, by the way, it's Philippians 2. I don't know why I wrote one. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used or something to be grasped or something to be held onto. That language can be translated in any number of ways. Who let go of all the riches he had in order to be made as a servant. And, and it's, this is a passage you've preached loads of times, but Paul is saying to the Philippians, I want you to act together in the same way as Jesus has shown us how to act. Which is, you don't need to always be pressing for the next 
biggest thing. You can let go. You can look like you've lost. You can look like you're free and useless. You can look like you've not got much to offer. Because that's exactly what Jesus looked like. But God raised him. But God raised him. So I think it matters, this contentment, because I think throughout the book of Philippians, I think this is a theme that actually runs through the whole letter. I don't think it's just that one verse at the end. I think it is a theme that he's trying to say to the Philippian church. And by the way, just in brackets, the Philippian church were in the Roman colony where Rome was very evident. The empire, the power, the riches, the glory. And here you've got a little marginalized group of followers of the crucified Jesus. And so when Paul says, I'm still striving, what's he striving to do? I'm striving to know Jesus, the power of his resurrection, which we all want to go hallelujah with, and to share with him in his sufferings, which we're not so keen on. So it's a theme that runs through, but here he's found contentment. Two last things I want to say. Firstly, it matters because it, it matters because we're following Jesus. The second thing I want to say is it matters because it will shape the way we do ministry. In the contemplative pastor by uh, Eugene Peterson, um, and uh, you, you know Eugene Peterson from uh, the message uh, version of the Bible, I'm sure. But before he wrote the Bible, he wrote a whole stack of things about... Um, <laughs> <laughs> the message is great, and you read the message, and you go, that's fantastic. I didn't know that was in the Bible. And then you go back, and you realize it wasn't. <laughs> but then you think, it should have been. It was really good. <laughs> but before he did that paraphrase, he wrote some excellent, really helpful books about pastoral ministry. And they shaped, they certainly shaped me more than anything else. But in The Contemplative Pastor, he quotes someone else writing about pastoral ministry. And he writes about a man and a woman who take an attitude, it's a posture, to pastoral ministry. He, for example, believes church, uh, balances church budgets, counsels divorcees and delinquents, writes sermons. But beneath it all is a constant watchfulness, a taking note. Even as he stands in the pulpit, he sifts the faces of the congregation for those fine grains, no larger than the dust of pollen, that carry the spoor of the trail he's on. And I, as a pastor's wife, I sit among them, listening, recording, watching, remembering, softly, softly. The clues one must go on are often small and fleeting, a millimeter's widening of the eye a faint contradiction of the nostrils, a silent exhalation, uh, the slight upward modulation of the voice to spy out the reality hidden in appearances requires vigilance, perseverance. It takes everything I've got. You and I are not leading an organization. I mean, we are. You've got to balance the books. You've got to work out your buildings, etc., you're ministering 
to people who are not yours. They're God's. You're among holy people. And you're watching. And you're taking note. And because you've learned to be still and sense the presence of God, and if a candle for 15 minutes helps you, then when you're with people, you're looking more closely. You're not doing business with people. You're attending to God at work in and amongst people. You may have said this, and, and, and you certainly will have heard it, and there's two things that we say which I think are awful things to say. One is, I'm bored. Or some version of that. These people are boring. Or I've taken this church as far as I can go. And I want to tell you, I believe, and I kind of want to be upfront about it, I think the moment we think either of those two things, we've lost the game. How dare we call the people that we worship with, the people who are gods, the people who God's at work in, boring. You're living, as C.S. Lewis said, amongst immortals. And if you find them boring, you simply haven't learned to have the right conversation. And so we do our ministry looking for the traces of God amongst them. Anybody can lead an organization and build a business and build a brand. It takes skill to attend to what God's doing. And if I'm always looking over my shoulder and wishing I was somewhere else or wishing we were something different or wishing I was something different, I'll never be at ease here, able to sit with Richard and his like and notice what he's not telling me and notice the look in his eye when he talks about some things and the way his voice just changes a little. And in doing that, it's not that I become some weird, creepy stalker. <laughs> but it's because I can remind Richard where God is. And my last point about why I think this is significant is it means I can resist the anxiety. In a novel by a guy called Richard Ford, who's I think is brilliant, uh, written a series of novels over the years, but in Canada, he just uses a line that caught my attention that I think is really profound. He talks about the nervous American intensity for something else. Pentecostal and charismatic spirituality was birthed out of revival, which was absolutely brilliant, but the unintended consequence of being birthed out of revival is you're always looking for something new. And when you're always looking for something new, you can never be content with what you've already got. And when you're always looking for something new, you can never look back over your shoulder and go, that was brilliant. 
And consequently, people like me who get the chance and people like you who get the chance to speak to many other people, we heighten people's anxiety by always telling them there's got to be more. There's got to be more. There's got to be more. There's got to be more than this. We sing it. There's got to be more than this. And what we're singing together to one another is, gosh, this is not good enough, is it? Now, I know at our best what we mean is, oh, God, please come renew, revive, set us free. And you're a worship leader. I'm sorry if we're going to sing that in a moment. Um, <laughs> to be honest, if we're going to sing that in a moment, I'm more than sorry. I am embarrassed. <laughs> but here's the thing. We live, you know, when you're old, you, you, you know the trends. And we've, it, it strikes me that economic neoliberalism and capitalism that, that sort of is based upon continual growth cannot deliver what it promises. So the consequence of my lifetime, I'm, I'm 59 now, so my lifetime has just been boom and bust. That's the economic cycle. Because we can't, we, we can't live, it doesn't, you know, if we can just get the economy right, all will be well. It'll only be well for a while and then we'll bust again. So we live in constant boom and bust. But the picture that politicians want us to believe is that you get upward growth all the time. So the promise is never worked out in reality. So the intensity for something new. Now, I think that's affected the church. Your church can't grow every year. Because for some of you, you've got some old people. And statistically, old people die. And it might, might wreck your attendance records. <laughs> but they've got more on their mind. <laughs> but if the intensity, the nervous intensity... For something else dominates you. You will miss the beauty of what you've been given. Well, I'm over time. I'd like us to, I don't know if this is possible, but I'd, what I'd like us to be able to do, we'll go and have coffee. Um, but what I'd like us to do is when we come back, rather than just, can we, can we just, can I start again when we get back? Because what I'd like you to do in the intervening period is just try and clock and remember what seemed important to you as you were listening. And we'll start with or that. Yes, but. Or what was the yeses? I'm kind of happy just for yes. Um, but what, what was going through your mind? What caught your attention? What seems significant? What's worth carrying away? I'm just filling in for time now, repeating myself until you begin. So anytime you like. We'll give you a microphone so that people can hear your pearls of wisdom, Andy. It's like, yeah, we heard the first bit. It's not worth recording. <laughs> Do you want this one? Okay, take that one. I've got the power now. Oh, great. Uh, yeah, I was just uh, thinking about the difference between contentment and passivity, and sometimes, I mean. A lot of monks are content, um, but, uh, you know, the, what, I suppose the place of ambition and proactivity and vision 
amongst all of this. So to be content, but actually to be going for some stuff as well. Yeah, basically, that's, that's the question. You're asking... Oh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm very much hoping to give the microphone to you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, uh, can you answer that for me? Uh, I was hoping you'd give me that. We'll, we'll come back to that in a moment. Yes, we've got another one. Someone else, what were you thinking? I'll, I'll, I will come back to it. Well, someone else, what are you, what are you thinking? Someone asked me yesterday... Um... We'll give you a microphone. I, I, I'm not sure why we're giving you a microphone, but... <laughs> yes. Some, some... Recording it. Recording it. Oh, dear. Someone asked me yesterday, uh, what's your dream for the church? Yeah. And I stumbled on my words, trying to think, what is the dream? And I suppose in planting a church, you start off with a dream, and then you perhaps get to a point where you go, I just, I just need to be a faithful shepherd and be content with what I've got and look after what I've got. But I was challenged, we should still dream. There needs to be a dream. I suppose it's a bit like what Andy just said. Yeah. There's a contentment yeah. to be a shepherd. And I spoke to a young pastor last week. We had a coffee, new guy sort of in the city. And he was very ambitious. And he's like, oh, but it's hard to grow churches in Wales, isn't it? It's really tough. And he says, it's easy in England, isn't it, don't you think? It's harder in Wales. And I said, well, maybe. I, I don't know. But, um, but there was a sense of ambition, which mm. I was a bit concerned about. And I said, listen, if God's given you 30 and he wants you to look after 30 for 10 years, you look after those 30. Mm. Be a faithful shepherd, but I know at the same time he needs to dream big yeah. dreams. So that's it. It's a, it's a similar question, isn't it? The, 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 the link between, and it's, it's why we don't talk about contentment, because we're frightened that we'll end up in passivity and tolerance and sitting back. So, yeah, um, what's your name? Hannah. Hannah. Can you give Hannah a microphone? Um, so, mine's actually kind of the opposite. Like, the thing that came out for me is I don't actually, I, I don't find church boring. I find it overwhelming. And I find the need overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And so I end up feeling numb. Yeah. So rather than, because I think the thing that I feel is like contentment isn't weakness. Contentment is sitting in what God has given you and like walking in it. Yeah. And so that doesn't need, to, that's not passive at all. No, 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 no. Um, it, there's like an activity in it. But I think what I can find is I walk into church and I look around at the room and I see all these people who I love and this flock that the Lord has like given me and my team to pastor, shepherd. And the need is so great. And the, the, the beautiful lines of what God is doing in their life is so wonderful. And yet also the brokenness and the not stepping into the depths of what God has for them. Is so real and my longing for them to know Jesus more. Yeah. Sometimes I'm like, please, can we not grow? Because actually, if we grow, I don't have any more capacity to deal with yeah. what's yeah, yeah, going yeah. on. Yeah, yeah, good. So it's that kind yeah. of... Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. Your, heart, your heart of compassion just uh, oozes out, which is brilliant. Um, and, um, and I think we all... You know, there, there, I understand what you mean is, oh, Lord, don't send us anymore. John Wimber once said, amongst many things, but one of these said, he said, you know, the problem with growing churches is it's just more people. Um, <laughs> um, I, I, one of the things I would want to say, I think that in our tradition, uh, spiritual tradition, I think we overestimate um, two things. I think we overestimate the degree of healing that will be given to us this side of eternity. And I think we overestimate how quickly things can be dealt with. 
So I, I, I'm not wanting to be negative or contentious. I, we have ministry times, we have people who minister in very specific ways of deliverance, etc. But I think that that needs to go alongside hand in hand with, you might be walking with a limp for the rest of your life until you reach eternity. And you are welcome to do that with us. Um, I had a lady in our church who, for many years, suffered crippling, crippling depression. Um, you know, the, the sort of depression whereby her husband would ring me and say, Neil, come, she's in the wardrobe again in a, in a ball. Um, and she was a really strong believer, but she just had this, this crippling condition. And, um, and she stopped coming to church for a while because she said, I feel I'm disappointing everybody else because they're praying so hard for me and my pr their prayers don't seem to be getting answered. And I remember talking to her at the time and saying, I think I, I need you to come to church because when you walk forward for communion, you're one of the very few people in this building at this point who are saying, I'm doing this by faith. I have no evidence in my own life at the moment of the healing of Jesus, but I'm walking by faith. And, and I, I think that, you know, it, it, it's always a balance, isn't it? And it's trying to encourage people that there is healing, and clearly there is healing, because we've experienced it in our own lives and we've seen it around us, but there's also that sense of what does living by faith look like when you have nothing to see? except you cling to the cross of Jesus. And those people become a gift to us as a body. Because not least to the preachers amongst us, because they stop us and our easy believism preaching. And we need people in front of us who are going, can you remember me? It's not working out as you've suggested so easily. And, and I think it leads to a maturer faith. She, she was healed. She was healed remarkably after a long period of time. Um, she still has episodes where she, she will dip again, but she has been healed. And, um, but those 10 years, were the, she was the gift of God to our church. I work on this basis that everybody who comes to our church and connects themselves with us is a gift from God for a purpose. And my job is to work out what that purpose is <laughs> and to reassure them of that. And I don't mean, are they, a, you know, can they play the bass? Because <laughs> we're just one bass player away from a revival. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm wanting to discover with them, what do you offer to us that we have not yet had? Um, and the messiness is the gift that God gives us. Anyway, sorry, Hannah, I'm burbling on, but thank you. Thank you. Anybody else? This side of the room do very well. Yeah, we've got a couple of things over here. Just um, about being content in who you are. Yeah. Um, it's so easy, as you said, to try and be all things to all people. And recognizing therefore that the way we should operate is in team mm. and that you know, recognizing being content in what i've got and what god's gifted me to be and do but also the other people 
in terms yeah. of leadership so that together you're content with where everyone is at yeah and and you you complement each other yeah you know i think that's, that's and i think that that idea of in and teaching one another and creating a culture uh, whereby nobody is intimidated by anybody else's gifts Nobody else is, nobody is intimidated by someone else's gifts. So it's easy in our context to feel intimidated by someone who seems to hear from the Lord in prophetic words really clearly and really simple, you know, clearly and straightforwardly. That, and it can easily be that if that doesn't happen for you, for you to feel intimidated by that or that something is wrong with you. And I think that I think we've got to be alert to God speaking to us, and I think that's the, the whole deal of prayer and spiritual disciplines and all the rest of it. But I, I hesitate to say this, but, but let me try. To the extent that I have um, I've tried to do what God has asked me to do in the way that God has tried to gift me, has, has gifted me, in terms of teaching and, and trying to help people understand and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. To the extent that I've done that successfully with what God has given me, why, why would I expect that I would be equally as good in prophetic or apostolic ministry? I would be dangerous <laughs> were I omnicompetent. I think God guards us by reminding us of our limitations. You see, if I thought I was omnicompetent, I wouldn't need anybody else. And if I was omnicompetent, I would be even more tempted to control. If I was omnicompetent, I would be even more arrogant than I can be in my own life at the moment. And bombastic and all of the sort of failings of being a man at a certain age. <laughs> so I'm told <laughs> regularly <laughs> I'd just be dangerous so how does God guard us how does God guard the church I mean this is off topic really but you and I both know how many instances we are living through of senior leaders that we have looked to and benefited from and have shaped our ministries in different ways, who towards the end of their ministry, it now appears either they crashed at the end or they were crashing all the way through. And one of the things, and I could spend ages talking about this because I have thought about it, but one of the things that those situations have in common is the distancing from other people and the recognition of their own weakness. It's a common feature. And there's something about that idea of, if I recognize my own limitations, I need someone else alongside me and, and who will speak into and all the rest of it. And the extent to which I refuse to distance myself guards me against the enemy who would bring destruction to me, to my family, and to my church. So the limitation is a guarding that God has given us that is fundamental to us. Anyway, I'm really burbling now, but it, I think it's, 
I think it's to be embraced. And I think it is that sort of confidence. Now, I've got to say that I think this is a stage of life thing. I think it's easier, you know, at the, at the end of a ministry life to be able to go, I'm really confident in who I am. When I was in my 20s, I didn't know what my gifting was. I just tried everything. And people, God sent people who helped me know what my gifting wasn't. They had the gift of discouragement <laughs> and were keen to use it. And it was bruising at times because I was young and headstrong and ambitious and driven and desiring of more. So I think there is a sense in which earlier in life you try everything, but I think there's some sense where you go, I am, this is who God has gifted me to be. I will do the best I can. I will know what to turn down. I will know what to say no to. I will know what to say yes to. Um, and I need other people around me. Maybe one more. Um, you put your hand up and then we'll just take this. And then I'll, because I think I want to come back then to Andy's question and, and to your question as well. I think mine was similar to what Andy was saying, really. It's, um, I have a very high expectation of God to do more. I want to see more. I want to see God's fire in the church. I want to see what's preached actually in action. Um, I don't want to sort of be lackluster, I suppose, or just to settle to, you know, so it's that it's a bit between being content and actually wanting more as well. Just um, a little example that I've been struggling with recently is um, my grandson, he's four. <coughs> and when he was two, he broke his leg. <clears throat> but sometimes now, it'll still give him problems, like it will give way, or if he jumps too much, it hurts. And but he was, we, I was taking him to the toilet in church last Sunday, and he was limping. And I said to him, is your leg sore? And he said, yes. He told me what had happened. And I said, oh, you know, did you tell mummy? And he said, yes. Mummy said, there's nothing anyone can do. And I said to him, well, I said, Jesus can do something. You know, you can pray to Jesus and ask him. And he said, well, when I pray to Jesus and ask him, ask him, he said, asked him. He said he didn't do a very good job. And I was, it was really funny. That's what we told church. Everyone laughed after their kids gone out and shared it. But actually, when I thought about it, I thought, I don't want the kids in the church growing up thinking God doesn't do a very mm -hmm. good job. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? I don't want that for them. I want them to see the fire. I want them, when our kids were little, they prayed for things. And amazingly, they, we saw so many miracles. People were healed. Um, backs were healed. You know, people could walk. They saw pictures. And it was like God answered their things. And it's like he's not doing it now. And I really, really want to see that. So I suppose I'm discontented with the lack of God's stuff in the church, I suppose. But yeah. Okay. I hear you. And I'm please don't misunderstand me. I'm not arguing for passivity or lackluster. Um, but what I am wanting to do myself is to spot what God is doing. Now, you're right in saying that there are times where you're reminding people of the God we worship. You're reminding people of the God we worship. And without going off into a theological discussion about why some things happen and some things don't happen... I'm not, I, I hesitate to say this because this will raise other questions for you and I don't really want those questions to be raised, but hey, here we go. <laughs> You're welcome. I, I'm really not sure it's my faith that makes God work. 
I'm not sure that God has got some sort of faithometer that he's waiting for me to hit the ding, now you've got it. Oh, if only you'd had a little bit more. But I do think faith is, is the mustard seed that says, actually, the moment I turn to God, the moment you turn to God for your, your grandson is the moment you're exercising faith. The moment you said to your grandson, actually, I think Jesus could do something here, is the moment you exercise faith. It doesn't sound like the faith that we often talk about or that is exhibited from the front, but it's actually the step of faith that says, I think, I think God could do something here. This is the God I've come to know. So it's not settling. It is asking for more. And what I want to do, and Andy, I'm not trying to dodge your question because I think it's a really good question. And, and uh, Grant. Yeah, thank you for leading forward. <laughs> yeah. Appreciate that. Oh, yeah. Um, and you, and your, two, your two questions are good questions, and I kind of want to explore that here in this session. So bear with me, and then at the end, if we don't get it, you, we'll come back. You may have done this before. It's called a via ferrata. Uh, you get clipped onto, uh, you've done this um, in different places. You get clipped onto a, a metal uh, rope um, that is uh, pitted into the side of a rock face, and, uh, and then you make your way across it. Um, I've done it. It's great. It's good fun. Um, as long as you're not scared of heights and you trust the, um, uh, the equipment. On each of these Via Ferratas, there's a leader. If you were doing a Via Ferrata here, where would you want your leader to be? In the middle. Why? Right by my side. <laughs> okay. Why would you want to be in the middle? I think the answer is maybe the same. <laughs> Yeah, you'd want to be in the middle. You'd want your leader to be in the middle for security reasons. You'd want your leader to be close enough that if I panic, I, I won't fall off. And when we talk about leadership together, I think there's something about the imagery that's really important. We normally talk about leaders being out front, leading ahead and people following us. I'm wondering whether there are different images and metaphors for leadership that actually shape the way we think of ourselves as, as leaders. And this became uh, more evident to me when I was reading through Exodus recently. So like you, in the beginning of January, I started a new Bible through the year thing, and I'm doing okay so far. And, um, <clears throat> but I was reading through Exodus, and I came here. Exodus 28, and I just want to read a whole section of that chapter to you. Have Aaron, your brother, brought to you from among the Israelites. This is the Lord speaking to Moses. Along with his sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, so they may serve me as priests. Make sacred garments for your brother Aaron to give him dignity and honor. Tell all the skilled workers to whom I've given wisdom in such matters that they are to make garments for Aaron for his con uh, consecration. So he may serve me as priest. <clears throat> These are the garments they are to make. A breastplate, an ephod, a robe, a woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. They are to make these sacred garments for your brother Aaron and his sons, so they may serve me as priests. Have them use gold and blue, purple, 
and scarlet yarn and fine linen. God says to Moses, set aside your brother to be a family of priests and let them look like it. Make the ephod. An ephod was like an apron kind of affair. Um, It would cover the breast, but it would have um, straps over the shoulder. Um, Our best guess about what an ephod looked like. But it was uh, part of the uniform. Make the ephod of gold and of blue, purple and scarlet yarn and of finely twisted linen, the work of skilled hands. It's to have two shoulder pieces attached to two of its corners so it can be fastened. Take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel in the order of their birth. Six names on one stone and six on the other. Engrave the names of the sons of Israel on the two stones the way a gem cutter engraves a seal. Then mount the stones in gold filigree settings and fasten them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as memorial stones for the sons of Israel. Aaron is to bear the names on his shoulders as a memorial before the Lord. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? I've got the names of the people on my shoulders, and when I come in before God, I carry all these people to God. It goes on. Fashion a breastpiece for making decisions, the work of skilled hands. Then mount four rows of precious stones on it. They are to be the 12 stones, one for each of the names of the sons of Israel, each engraved like a seal with the name of one of the 12 tribes. (coughs) Make a breastplate for your decisions and wear that. And whenever Aaron enters the holy place, he'll bear the names of the sons of Israel over his heart on the breastpiece of decision as a continuing memorial before the Lord. Also put the Urim and Thummim in the breastpiece so they may be over Aaron's heart whenever he enters the presence of the Lord. Thus Aaron will always bear the means of making decisions for the Israelites over his heart before the Lord. And then finally, make a plate of pure gold, engrave it as on a seal, holy to the Lord. Fasten a blue cord to it to attach to the turban. It's to be on the front of the turban. It will be on Aaron's forehead and he will bear the guilt involved in the sacred gifts the Israelites consecrate, whatever the gifts may be. It will be on Aaron's forehead continually so they will be acceptable to the Lord. Now, you Anabaptists are now doing double flips in your head, going, yes, but that's Old Testament. And yes, it is. But here's the thing. Your congregation, or your, I was going to say denomination, which I know you're not, (laughs) have set you aside. They've asked you to pay attention to certain things. For some of you, they have provided you with an income so that you don't, so you do have time to do certain things for them. They recognize that the things they ask of you take time and will need your time if you're going to do them well. 
So they pay you an income to do it. And you only really have three tasks as leaders. You are called to pray for them. Your core job is prayer. You're called to remind them of the story of God and the part they play in the story of God. And some of you will do that in teaching and some of you do it in preaching. Some of you do it in small groups, but you're, you're called to remind them of the story of God and the part they play. And you're called to get alongside them. And I want to say, you're called to get alongside them, not primarily to care for them. Hannah, you can come back to me in a moment. <laughs> you're called primarily to get alongside them, to disciple them. And that's different than caring. Caring is done by friends. Discipling is done by those who go, I see a bigger picture here, and I want to help you embrace it. Caring, at its crassness, and it's, more than, it's always more than this, says, I hope you get better soon. Discipling goes, even if you don't get better soon, I want you to know God better. You're called to pray for them. You're called to teach, preach, lead, spiritually direct, any of those sort of language you want to use. And you're called to disciple them. You do lots of other stuff. But if you're not doing those three things, this sounds arrogant and I'm a visitor and I'll never come back again. I don't think you're doing your job. Because they've set you apart to do certain things. Now the problem and the unspoken problem with church leadership is that nobody has a good job description. Many of you won't have a job description. And many of your church won't know what your job is. And therefore they will uh, criticize you on the basis of what they think your job should be. And the problem is you've never actually explained to them what your job is and where your job begins and ends. And someone somewhere needs to go, I think this is the work of a pastor. Because ironically, we don't teach one another what that role is. We just talk about leadership and the leadership process that, and this might be an overgeneralization, I recognize this at this point. What we are tempted to do is to talk about strategy, about growth, about mission, about organizational. Now, all of that is worthy work. It's not bad work, but it's not your primary task. Your primary task is on behalf of a community, a community have asked you, 98% of Christians have asked 2% of Christians, will you be our pastors, leaders, ministers? Call it what you will. I'm nervous because I grew up in a context where they stopped talking about ministers and they started talking about leaders. And leaders don't need to take any notice of people. In the world, leaders can sack people by an email for the sake of the business. Ministers can't. You know that thing I read before about from Eugene Peterson? 
Ministers sit close. Now, there's part of us that all want larger churches. And, and you know, you're, you're right to want that. Who wants to pray, God, make our church smaller? God goes, I don't need to answer that prayer. You're doing fine on your own. Um, <laughs> you don't need my help. <laughs> but there is something actually behind this that goes, what's the optimum number of people in your church? What's an optimum number for your community? At what point do you no longer know people's names? Fundamental. At what point do you no longer know their names? And we need audaciouses, and I, I, I make, I'm not, not a jot not a of criticism about these flagship churches that we have in our cities. They do a fantastic job. But I don't think they're the norm. I think they're the abnorm. And I think what is much more normal is the 50 to 150, 250 churches that most of us experience. And it's not that we failed or that God has failed us. It's actually that it, this is the optimum number of a community in, all, in which people can know one another. For how can we grow if we don't know? This is the community you have been called to. This is your task. You see, my job as pastor is really quite limited in comparison to the people in my congregation. Their ministry lives are far more interesting than mine. In my church, I just jotted down last week, there's a guy in my church who is from an African nation who is actively working for the overthrow of a corrupt regime. I only found that out a few weeks ago when he came for a coffee. <laughs> How's things going? Well, the government hasn't fallen yet. And he's sitting there Sunday by Sunday, and I'm preaching to him. And he's trying to hear the word of God as he's doing that work. His life is much more interesting than mine. I have one of the very few swan ringers in Britain. Many of you probably don't know what a swan ringer is. It's a, it's a royal appointment. Um, they are allowed to put rings on swans, count them, know how many swans they are. And this guy has been part of Greater Manchester for 40 years and has, through his work, increased the number of swans and the rewilding of some of our areas in Manchester. I've watched him ring. A, he's, I went out with him. He said, do you want me to do you want see how I do it? I said, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's brilliant. That swan didn't know what hit him. <laughs> He's rewilding Manchester. I've got foster parents. We didn't make this a deal, but we've got numbers of foster parents who've taken on children. Every foster child is a tragedy. Every foster child is a tragedy. Because something didn't work. And we've got multiple foster carers in our church who are doing stunning work. At, re, at working with, with children to make their life secure. 
And I, I just tip my hat off to them and go, do you know what? I think you're brilliant. A few years ago, Maggie said to, us, said to me, I think we should foster children. And it's the one time in our marriage that I said, I don't, I, I didn't agree. I mean, we've had loads of times when we haven't agreed. But it was the time when I won my disagreement. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense to any of you. <laughs> and I just said, I, I don't think we can do it. I don't think I can do it. I don't think I can do it. And I've got all these brilliant foster parents. They've got far more significant ministry in many ways than I ever will. I've got a woman who works in the food. She set the food bank up. And I've got an actress who's living in a world that I can't even begin to understand. It's just five people, and I could, go, I could genuinely go on and tell you about the people that listen to my sermons. <laughs> my job is to pray for them. My job is to help them understand their place in the story of God. So when the actress a few years ago said, Neil, I don't think I should be doing this because it just feels frivolous. It doesn't feel like it's achieving anything. What is the theology of acting? Well, you need your pastor teacher to tell you that. My job is to give a theology of. I'm only actually expert in one thing, and it's theology. It's the only thing I've ever studied. It's the only thing I've really read to any degree. It's the only thing I feel confident in. But what is the theology of swan ringing? Because <laughs> there ain't that many books about that. <laughs> That's my job. I said, Tony, go back, go somewhere else. <laughs> I've got one, but I'm not doing it now. This is my job. This is your job. Where do you fit in the story of God? And can you walk alongside them? Now, the brilliant thing is this. For me and for us, for all of us, these five things that Moses said to Aaron, or the Lord said, well, the Lord said to uh, Moses and then through to Aaron, have been completed in Jesus. Jesus has clothed us in honor and dignity. He carries us by name. I love the picture of him carrying us, our names on his shoulders, as interceding to the Father. He knows my name. He gives wisdom for the decisions we need to make. He carries us over his heart and he bears our guilt. Jesus fulfilled the ironic uh, ministry perfectly. We know that. So this is good news for us as leaders because we can rest in the work of Jesus for us and the extent to which we do that will lead to greater security before him. You know, when you're struggling um, with all you're doing with church, then actually you need to know you are being carried by Jesus before the Father. He is interceding for you and he's interceding for your church. It's a brilliant picture from Hebrews. Of this is the work that Jesus has committed himself to until eternity that he will pray for you. And on the days when you don't have a prayer left for yourself and your only prayer is some sort of inarticulate groan, it counts. And the other picture is the picture in Revelation of Jesus walking through the candlesticks. I love the idea that in, in, in the granary here, that 
You know, before people come in and, and meet on a Sunday morning, Jesus is walking through. And then when they're all sitting here, Jesus is just walking through the chairs. Just walking amongst us. He's doing that for us. He is so committed to us. I, I'm, I'm kind of just in preach moderate. He is so committed to us. I can trust him because he is more concerned about my church than I am. He is more concerned about me and my family than I am. He is more concerned about what can happen than I am. He is much better at praying than I am. And he is praying for you and for me and for us and our churches and our people and the actress and the swan ringer and the guy who's trying to overthrow a corrupt government. He's praying for them now. This faith is better than we thought. <laughs> and he's doing it in part at least because as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you weren't a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you hadn't received mercy, now you have received mercy. You see, we have been called to be priests with a very specific function as church leaders. But we are called to do that for a wide circle of priests who are clothed in dignity, carrying other people by name, giving wisdom for decisions, carrying others over their heart, and bearing with others' guilt. They have all the same. They, the people we worship, the people we lead, the people in our churches, have all the same resources we have. And they have a ministry that is their own. And some of you have heard me say this in different contexts. Their ministry is not primarily to support my ministry. And at the risk of, if you have heard me say this before, at the risk of being boring, it's really tempting for the next person who comes in the church for me to sit with them and go, how can you fit my vision? Do you play a bass guitar? Do, have you got a DBS? Do you long to be in a church building when everybody else has left and you're cleaning? If so, we have a place for you. But it is the conversation where new people come and after a few weeks and you know they've been with you and they're settling and they want to be part of your church, you sit with them and you go, what has God already called you to? What are you, how are you serving him? And how can we help you? Because then I stop being the collator of other people's gifts for my end. And I become part of a resource body that equips people for their ministry. We only have one actress who works on stage and TV. Only one. There are many Christians working in that field, but in our church there's only one. If she weren't part of us, we would have no ministry in that world. But because she's part of us, we do. I only have one person who's working for the overthrow of a government. The rest are just labor supporters. I've only got one. 
I've only got one person actively working in an African, for an African nation to overthrow a really corrupt regime. Somehow, in ways that I don't understand, we now have a ministry into that area that worries me, makes me nervous, makes me want to ask questions, that's messy. But without him, we wouldn't have it. And he doesn't play a bass guitar. Do you see what I mean? I've got to see the people I'm ministering to differently as priests. I've got to get them to say, well, what's the vision for your life? Not how can you serve my vision? See, my vision might be that we just continue to grow at 10, 20, 25% a year. That's not enough of a vision for 150, 200 people to give their lives for. But when I preach to those sorts of people, and if they carry it through, I've got people, work, as you have, working in schools who are speaking to a 1,000 people. You've got heads in your, in your churches, heads of schools, and they have direct responsibility for 1,000, 1,500 people. You are ministering to someone who has a bigger mission field than you have. The question is, are they equipped for it? When Peter writes the letter, and I'm going to come into land in a minute, but when Peter writes the letter, he, it's interesting that in a very short epistle, this is what he thinks is really important that his disciples understand. And the first is, what does it mean to be a citizen? And what does it mean to be a citizen in a Roman Empire? And he taught them how to do that. He taught them what it meant to be slaves or servants. He taught them what it meant to be married people. He taught about how to deal with the disappointments in real life. He talked about church, of course, and he talked about spiritual conflict. Because Peter understands the real possibilities of the priesthood of all believers. The priesthood of all believers is not that we all have a role in the church. The priesthood of all believers is that the church has a real role in the rest of the world. And you are the one who stands in church to remind these people that they are the priesthood for the sake of the world. The difficulty is, the challenge is, the task of overseeing the development of any organization and the organizational life of the church community so that they grow maturity is sometimes overwhelming and you need help. But the unintended consequence of that is your organization is deemed to be of primary significance. The running of your church needs to be agile enough to equip the priesthood of all believers and not its own end. But it's really difficult to keep reminding yourself of that. Because it's difficult for me because I've got dreams for what our community can be. But what's difficult is my dreams become too small. I need a dream not about the community, church. I need a dream about the city. And I would argue that for all our talk about vision, in the end, the problem with all the talk about vision is it's too small. 
The vision for your church is not that there's simply more people. The vision for your church is that we serve the purpose of God in our towns, our city, our villages, and that the kingdom of God is seen there through the lives of people who worship with you, who commune with you, who are struggling with you, who you care for, who you disciple, who you equip, so they can go out and do it again. And this is why I think I'm trying to answer, in part, the question you asked, Andy. What, how can we be content? Well, because what can 50 people do <laughs> in the valleys? What can 40 people do in the valleys? And you might, you know, John, I'm not wanting to, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to say, I don't want to pick on you. Well, what are you doing then? Um, John, you know, I, I'm, I, this is not prophetic. I'm just using you as an example because I, I can imagine what it can be like sometimes. In a, in a forgotten place with people who feel forgotten who wonder how to get through as a leader as a minister in that context it can be quite at times it's just hard work and you look at and you know certainly there were times in, in my church life where you know 20 years ago our church kind of collapsed it was so small and so fragile you know that feeling where you, you close your eyes to pray on Sunday morning and you wonder when you open your eyes, will anybody else be here? It felt that fragile. But what can 40 people do in the village if 40 people are touching even just five other people each? And suddenly you're preaching not to 40 people but up to 200 people <laughs> and so on and so forth. In our lives, and this is an LICC slide, in our lives, the red dots represent roughly the percentage of people who come to church once a month or more. Around 5 or 6%. Difficult to get exact figures. And we can look at that, and depending on our mode and our mood, we can think of ourselves as up against it. But what we can end up doing is saying, well, how can we get these 5 or 6% of people to work harder to reach more? And what we've got is a culture challenge where we move from people seeing themselves as supporters of mission to participants in mission, from caring to equipping, from being a Christian to being a disciple, because that's where the church of Jesus is today. And it only works if two things are true. Firstly, that when they scatter, they don't gray out. That's why we disciple people. And that's why discipling is different than church behavioral code. Discipling is context-driven because that's where they are. That they don't gray out. And secondly, that they own the space. Lots of people say to me, I've, I've heard it so many times, well, when I retire, I really want to do something significant. And you kind of go, what a waste. Normally what they mean is, can I join a team in church? What a waste. You've got to own the space. So my task as a pastor, as a priest pastor, 
who prays and directs and teaches is to enable the priesthood of all believers to know what their calling is so that they don't gray out and they do own the space. My prophetic ministry, if anything, has to be to remind them to keep their eyes open about what God's doing amongst them in order that they might continue the vision that God has got for them. Because at the end of time, God will ask of each of us, I gave you gifts and I gave you a context. Did you do what I asked of you? And for some people, that will be the school. For some people, that will be the family. For some people, that will be the church. For all of us, it will be, Lord, this is what I did with what you gave me in the context I was in. This is why contentment is not passivity. Because you're clear about your purpose. Last slide, and then I'll stop. There's a brilliant quote. And it's by a guy called Stephen Garver, and he wrote this. In the daily rhythm for everyone, everywhere, we live our lives in the marketplaces of this world, in homes and neighborhoods, in schools and on farms, in hospitals and businesses, and our vocations are bound up with the ordinary work that ordinary people do. We are not great shots across the barrels of history. Rather than by simple grace, we are hints of hope. I love that quote. We're not great shots across the bowels of history. Two generations later, they'll forget about us. <laughs> You'll be on a family tree somewhere. <laughs> and they'll be wondering, I wonder what they were like. And you'll ask people in your family, what were they like? And people will go, I can't remember. <laughs> or even worse, they were okay. <laughs> we're not great shots across the bowels of history. But in every generation, we are hints of hope. Red dots scattered for the sake of the kingdom. So I suppose what I've been wanting to say this morning and this is the moment where the speaker goes, this is the one sentence, and the rest of you go, well, why didn't you just say the one sentence? This is, <laughs> this is what I wanted to say, is this. I think spiritual maturity involves, it's not the only thing, but I think it involves deep contentment that is learned in the difficult days, <coughs> which gives you a posture as a leader that enables you to give other people a vision for their lives. If you are deeply discontented, it will be because things haven't worked out for you as you thought they might have done, and you will either be their judge, or you will try and drive. And either of those things are deeply dehumanizing. So my call to myself is, can I be that contented leader who has a bigger vision than I ever imagined. A vision for the city and not just for the church. A vision for families. A vision for schools. A vision for businesses. A vision for the NHS. We sit amongst immortals who are doing remarkable work. 
And this is not, therefore, a moment where we pray, God, do more. It's, God, slow me down enough to know who's in front of me. The stories of remarkable grace and remarkable mission are there in front of you every week. It's just that they're not in need, and so they don't normally require your time. Therefore, you miss them. But you will be so encouraged. So, if there's one thing that you might do, it's this. Next week, make an appointment with somebody who doesn't need you. And who's not serving on one of your teams. So, it's not, I mean, they could be, but it's not the conversation about that. Go and find someone who's not asking for your help, and it's not about what they're giving to the organization. And go and find out what God's doing. You will be amazed. For this is the reason. The Spirit is amongst us. And he's doing a work that we can only guess at. And Jesus is interceding for us and praying things that we don't imagine. And the Father's got a plan that we're part of. May you know the blessing of God. (laughs) May you have eyes to see. May you be slow enough in your walk to take note. May you be content with the place you are so that you can minister really well. And may your vision be wider than it's ever been. In the name of Jesus.